You are listening to Girls Speak, a podcast series all about art, history, and contemporary culture with a girl's eye view. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 59 of Girls Speak, our celebration of International Museums Day 2016. I'm Tiffany Rhodes, program developer for Girl Museum. Thanks for tuning in, downloading, or streaming us today. Girl Speak is produced by Girl Museum, the first and only museum in the world dedicated to celebrating girlhood. Girl Museum explores the art, history, and culture of girls around the world in the past and present. All of our programs are volunteer-run and supported by listeners like you. Visit us on the web at www.girlmuseum.org. This month, we celebrate International Museums Day. Each year, this holiday recognizes the amazing work that museums do in preserving our history and culture. This year's theme is Museums and Cultural Landscapes. What this means is that we're celebrating how museums impact the communities in which they live. Cultural Landscapes is a branch of study that looks at how an entire landscape, not just a building, but the land, artifacts, and monuments surrounding it, impact our understanding of history and culture. Everything around you shapes your daily experiences, from how far you drive to school to how accessible resources like water and food are to your home. And this has been true for every girl in history. Her life is profoundly shaped by the community in which she lives. Today, I'd like to celebrate the cultural landscape of girlhood. In advocating for a better world for girls, we often focus on modern day problems, access to resources, ability to gain an education, etc. Yet a major factor in not only inspiring girls, but improving that they have a history integral to our overall human story, is the stories behind historical sites where girls lived and even died. Where they became the incredible women whom we remember and celebrate today. Where their contributions have not been forgotten. Today, I invite you to join me on a journey into the history of girlhood, as told by the monuments, buildings, and landscapes that they left behind. Our first stop is Ellis Island in the United States. Here, thousands upon thousands of immigrants first stepped onto American soil, hoping for better lives. Among them was one girl whom you can still see today. Her name was Annie Moore, and she was the first immigrant to walk through the doors of Ellis Island on January 1, 1892. Annie was 17 when she arrived at Ellis Island from her home in County Cork, Ireland. Having spent 12 days at sea, Annie was probably very nervous and excited about the opportunity for a new life in America. She arrived with her two younger brothers, Anthony and Philip, aboard the SS Nevada. With Annie leading the way, they were greeted not only by their parents, who had immigrated earlier, but also by journalists eagerly awaiting to capture the first immigrant to pass through Ellis Island. As stated in the New York Times article on January 2, 1892, there were three big steamships in the harbor waiting to land their passengers, and there was much anxiety among the newcomers to be the first landed at the new station. The honor was reserved for a little rosy-cheeked Irish girl. She was Annie Moore, 15 years of age, lately a resident of County Cork, and yesterday one of the 148 steerage passengers landed from the steamship Nevada. Her name is now distinguished by being the first registered in the book of the New Landing Bureau. 
When the little voyager had been registered, Colonel Weber presented her with a ten-dollar gold piece, and made a short address of congratulation and welcome. It was the first United States coin she had ever seen, and the largest sum of money she had ever possessed. She says she will never part with it, but will always keep it as a pleasant memento of the occasion. What became of Annie after that grand ceremony remained largely a mystery until 2006. That year, the New York Times reported that Annie had remained in New York, marrying a German-American and having at least ten children before her death in 1924. She is buried in Calvary Cemetery in Queens, under a Celtic cross made of limestone imported from her homeland. She spent her entire life on New York's Lower East Side, including her residence at 99 Cherry Street. Today, you can see Annie as she stands in the Ellis Island Museum, hat on her head, eagerly awaiting her new life. There is also a statue of Annie and her brothers on the quayside in Cove, Ireland. Her image forever represents the millions of people, and girls, who pass through Ellis Island in pursuit of the American dream. Also in America is William France Elementary School. Now, that name may not ring a bell, but there is one image that you might recognize. Norman Rockwell's The Problem We All Live With. This drawing was originally published in Look Magazine and depicts the civil rights struggle of the 1960s through the story of one incredible girl, Ruby Bridges. Ruby was born in Mississippi and raised in Louisiana. At the age of six, she went down in history when her parents volunteered her to participate in the integration of the New Orleans school system. Until this point, schools in New Orleans had been segregated. That is, students' placement at schools was determined solely by their race. This often left African American and other minority children disenfranchised. Their schools suffered from the funding and lack of resources as a result of discrimination. During the Civil Rights Movement, and following the decisions of Brown versus the Board of Education case in the Supreme Court, schools were desegregated, and Caucasian and minority children went to school together for the first time in many places. Ruby's story made national headlines. She was one of only six children in New Orleans to pass the test that determined whether she could go to the all-white school. Yet Ruby became extraordinary, because she had to go to William France Elementary by herself. She described the day, stating, Driving up, I could see the crowd, but living in New Orleans, I actually thought it was Mardi Gras. There was a large crowd of people outside the school. They were throwing things and shouting, and that sort of goes on in New Orleans at Mardi Gras. Ruby was escorted into school by U.S. Marshals, who commended Ruby on her bravery. She never cried or whimpered, but instead just marched along like a little soldier. Only one person agreed to teach Ruby at the school, Barbara Henry, a teacher from Boston. For over a year, Ruby was taught on her own by Barbara. She was also only able to eat food she brought from home, as she was often threatened with being poisoned by those who didn't want her at the white school. Every day she faced threats, angry comments, and even effigies of herself to place in coffins as she made her way to school. Her family also suffered, with her father losing his job, their local grocery store refusing to serve them, and her grandparents being turned off their land. Today, Ruby still lives in New Orleans and chairs the Ruby Bridges Foundation, which promotes tolerance, respect, and appreciation of all differences in an effort to combat racism. Her elementary school still stands, now accepting students of all races and backgrounds, 
a silent witness to the echoes of the not-so-distant past. Across the states in Seattle Peace Park, as well as across the Pacific in Hiroshima Peace Memorial Park in Japan, you will find another story commemorating girls. In this park, often surrounded by hundreds of origami paper cranes, is a statue of Sadako Sasaki. Sadako was a two-year-old Japanese girl who awoke on August 6, 1945. That day, her life would change forever. Just over a mile away, the Americans dropped an atomic bomb on the city of Hiroshima. Sadako was blown out of the window she was near and later found by her mother, alive with little injuries. Gathered in her mother's arms, her family fled Hiroshima as the black rain began to come down upon them. As they fled, Sadako's grandmother decided to return to the house and was never seen again. For years, Sadako grew up as normal as any girl could have after that tragedy. Yet, only nine years later, she began to notice swelling in her neck and behind her ears. The nuclear fallout that she had been exposed to, including the black rain, had caused leukemia to form in Sadako's body. She was hospitalized on February 20, 1955, at the age of 12. Six months later, she moved into a hospital room with a 14-year-old student, who told her about the Japanese legend that promises that anyone who folds 1,000 origami cranes will be granted a wish. Sadako's new friend taught her how to fold the cranes, and she spent the majority of her time using medicine wrappings and whatever she could find to make the cranes. By the end of August, Sadako had folded the 1,000 cranes and continued to fold more, making approximately 1,400 before her death in October of 1955 at the age of 12. Her cranes, and those made by her classmates, were buried with her. After her death, Sadako's friends and schoolmates published a collection of letters to raise funds for a memorial to her and all of the children who had died because of the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In 1958, a statue of Sadako holding a golden crane was unveiled in Hiroshima Peace Park Memorial Park, and later another was unveiled in Seattle Peace Park. At the foot of the statue is a plaque that reads, This is our cry, this is our prayer, peace in the world. Today, Sadako's statue and story live on as a reminder that nuclear war is devastating, and that war itself cuts far too many lives short. August 6th is celebrated in Japan as annual peace day and dedicated to her memory. Now we travel to Seoul, South Korea. Here, in front of the Japanese embassy, you'll find a bronze statue of a girl sitting quietly next to an empty chair. She represents the comfort women, those who were sexual victims of the Japanese military and forced to work in brothels. It was erected in 2011 by the Korean Council for the Women Drafted for Military Sexual Slavery by Japan, and has since served as a center for protests and public calls for reparations. As we discussed in our podcast on World War II, the Japanese enslaved Korean girls and women during the war for use by their soldiers in the camps. These women were forcibly removed from their families as teenagers and threatened with torture and death unless they agreed to serve as laundresses, maids, and sex slaves for the Japanese military. Now, surrounded by the city, this bronze statue interrupts an otherwise modern landscape, a stark reminder that the past never truly goes away, and the effects of war are always remembered by those whose childhoods and lives were cut short. 
It also still serves as a touchpoint for international relations, with Japan calling for the statue's removal as a sign of goodwill, and Koreans refusing to remove the stark reminder of their past. This girl, sitting quietly and bothering no one, and the empty chair next to her, serve as a monument to the hundreds of comfort women from South Korea, of which only 46 still survive. In neighboring Russia, at the Yakutsk airport, another statue interrupts the modern hustle and bustle with a tale that is still fresh in many people's minds. This bronze sculpture shows a young girl and her dog, symbolizing the story of Karina and her puppy, Nida. In 2014, three-year-old Karina wandered away from her home in the remote Sak Pub Republic, accompanied by her dog, attempting to follow her father as he departed for his native village. For 12 days, she survived in this remote area of Siberia, unbeknownst to her parents, who each thought the other had taken her. Four days into her ordeal, her parents realized she was missing and launched a search and rescue. On the 10th day after she had wandered off, Karina's dog returned home urging rescuers to follow her. The dog led them to Karina two days later, who survived by eating wild berries and drinking river water, while protected by her dog from wild bears, wolves, and freezing temperatures. Today, their story is memorialized at the airport, a reminder of girls and their best friends. Now we journey to the Netherlands, home to one of the most famous girl landscapes, the Anne Frank House. Now a museum, this 17th century home in central Amsterdam was the site where Anne and her family hid from Nazi persecution during World War II. The back portion of this home became known as the Secret Annex because it is concealed from view by houses on all four sides. They moved into the home in July of 1942. Only 500 square feet in size, this annex would house Anne, her parents, and sister, and four other Jews seeking refuge during the war. The living space was spread across three floors, with two small rooms and a toilet on the first level, a larger room and a small room on the second, and an attic on the third floor. The space was only accessible by stairs hidden behind a bookcase. Anne and her family's only connection to the outside world were four helpers who kept them informed of news and supplied them with food. The family and friends remained in the house for two years and one month, which was chronicled in Anne's now world-famous diary, until their betrayal and arrest by Nazi authorities on August 4, 1944. Her diary and papers were collected by two of the helpers who were not arrested by the Nazis. Anne was interrogated and eventually sent to Auschwitz concentration camp. There she was stripped naked, disinfected, and her head shaved, and became a slave laborer hauling rocks and sod. Others who were in the camp with her have testified to her bravery during her time there, but that she eventually contracted scabies and was sent to the infirmary. Not two months later, Anne and her sister were sent to Bergen-Belsen. Her mother remained at Auschwitz, where she died of starvation. At Bergen-Belsen, the sisters were briefly reunited with friends, who later described Anne as bald, emaciated, and shivering. No one knows exactly what killed Anne and her sister. It could have been starvation or typhus when it spread in the camp in February of 1945. The sisters were buried in a mass grave at an unknown location. Only Anne's father survived their ordeal, eventually returning to Amsterdam. He would oversee the publication of Anne's diary in the early 1950s. 
Shortly after the publication of Anne's diary, it was made known that a developer wanted to demolish the house and build a factory. The public rallied in support of keeping the building, and in 1957 the Anne Frank Foundation was begun by Anne's father and others, with the goal of purchasing and restoring the building. Today, the museum is a major cultural site attracting thousands of visitors each year. You can explore her diary and the site, getting a first-hand look at Anne's life and the life of Jews in hiding during the war. We've explored quite a few sites where the stories of girls are allowed to shine. There are many more throughout the world. I'm certain of it, even if I haven't heard many of them. Everywhere I've been, I've seen statues of girls and wondered about their stories. I've gone through historic homes wondering where the girls are, where they stole their first kisses or read their favorite books or played with their pets. Where did they cry, laugh, and love? And as I travel, I constantly seek out where the girls are, what spaces they occupied, and where they made an impact on our human story. This International Museums Day, I send out a call to you, our listeners, to continue to seek out these stories. Help us uncover the hidden history of girls, the stories and sites where they have left their mark. And if you find them, share them with us. Send their stories to share at girlmuseum.org or tag us on social media and we'll gladly publish them to our blog. Together, we can bring girls' stories back from obscurity and draw inspiration from their incredible lives. They are all around you, waiting. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Be sure to tune in to our next podcast on May 30th as we round up the latest girl news. And please support future production of Girl Speak by visiting our website at www.girlmuseum.org and clicking donate. Thank you and have a wonderful day. If you like hearing a fresh, girl positive perspective on the internet, please support us with a tax deductible donation easily made on our website. Our music is courtesy of up-and-coming artist Han Av. You can find her SoundCloud link on our website.